Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Many of us know about the Tulsa massacre, but fewer of us know about the long history of innovation and the struggle for equity that continues in Greenwood to this day. Author Victor Lukerson aims to change that. Victor is a journalist and author based in Tulsa who works to bring neglected Black history to light. He is a former staff writer at The Ringer and business reporter for Time magazine. His new book, Built from the Fire, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street, is now available. There were approximately 200 businesses in Greenwood circa 1921. And not one of those businesses are left standing. On these very streets on which they were marching, hundreds of African-Americans were killed in one of the darkest chapters of Tulsa's and America's history. The first time in American history, uh, the airplanes were used to terrorize America was not a 9-11, was not at Pearl Harbor. It was right here in the Greenwood District. What was it like before the men came in with guns? What Were there stores? Was there movies? It was getting to be a pretty nice place. My name is Victor Lukerson. I'm a journalist. I think the city of Tulsa still hasn't done right by Greenwood, the neighborhood that was burned down during the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, and I'm going to call them out for it. Sorry, not sorry. Victor, I want to get to your book, Built from the Fire, but first tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I'm an author and a journalist, but really I've always identified as a writer. Ever since I was a little kid, writing stories for my friends in elementary school. The act of writing can feel very solitary, but I think that what writers produce, stories, articles, books, those are things that are really for community and for people to gather around. So writing's always been my passion, and journalism really entered into the equation when I was in college at the University of Alabama. I was the editor of the school newspaper, became the second Black editor ever at that school. And when I was there, I really sort of began to understand that the history that we see is not everything that's happened in any space. There's a lot beneath the surface, wherever you are. And so being at Alabama, I really started to question some of the master narratives that were just handed down to me. I wondered why walking around the quad on that campus, there were buildings named after Ku Klux Klan members and slaveholders. I wondered why, when I learned about the history of this school, I didn't hear anything about authoring Lucy, the first Black student who was run off of campus by a white mob in 1956 and expelled by the university. 
These are things that I was not taught, but that I started to dig into when I was a student there. And it really gave me an interest in learning about narratives that are beneath the surface. So that was my college experience. Took a detour to be a technology reporter for several years. I worked for Time Magazine um, and The Ringer. But working at The Ringer actually is when I asked my editor if I could go to Tulsa, Oklahoma for the first time to write a story about Greenwood and Black Wall Street. I had never been to Oklahoma. Oklahoma had not crossed my mind too much before visiting for the first time. But I'd always been really fascinated about this story about Black success and solidarity in Greenwood. Visiting that first time, though, was really striking because I really expected the story of Greenwood to be really revered and powerful in Tulsa. I remember standing at the corner of Greenwood Avenue and Archer Street, which is the epicenter of the neighborhood. It was the anniversary of the race massacre, the 97th anniversary in 2018. And... There were maybe 30 people there gathered around for a vigil to commemorate the people who had been killed during the attack. But there were hundreds more people in the neighborhood streaming towards a baseball stadium. There was a double-A baseball game going on the same night. And that was actually the main attraction of Greenwood on the anniversary of the race massacre. And that was my first day in Tulsa. And so seeing that this history wasn't being honored and respected in Tulsa the way I felt it should be, that was really a motivating factor for me to go deeper on this to go beyond just writing an article, but to write an entire book about Tulsa and make sure that this story is something that all Americans know about. God bless you for that. And tell me, when you started to do this research, what did you find out about how Greenwood came to be the center for Black life in Oklahoma? Yeah, it's a really fascinating story because, you know, Oklahoma, when you really rewind the clock, it was really this blank slate. Oklahoma could have been anything. It wasn't exactly in the deep south. It wasn't quite all the way out west. There were so many ways the state could have gone in directions. And a lot of Black folks ended up traveling out there from the deep south, trying to escape Jim Crow, Mississippi, hoping to find a better life. It was called the Eden of the West, even in advertisements. It was really being pitched as this Black utopia in the early 20th century. And Tulsa itself became the oil capital of the world. Oil was found in Tulsa in 1905. And that sort of helped create this economic engine in the state and in Tulsa that attracted even more Black people to the community. Greenwood itself was founded in 1905 when a man named O.W. Gurley, who had come from Arkansas, decided to take this low-lying land north of downtown Tulsa. He saw opportunity there and opened a grocery store, the People's Grocery in 1905. From this one grocery store, other businesses started to open homes, a church. And from that one little epicenter, this neighbor began to flourish. And because there are so many people coming from the Jim Crow South, these are some of the most ambitious, creative Black folks in America. And they sort of began to funnel into this place and really make it into what would become a nexus of Black wealth and Black opportunity. The story of Greenwood was a really positive one at first. But at the same time that this community was trying to get a foothold and find economic success Oklahoma was pivoting towards becoming a Jim Crow state. You can't really understand what happened in Greenwood during the race massacre without understanding what happened in Oklahoma in 1907. That's when Oklahoma became the 46th state and enshrined Jim Crow into its laws. At the time, Black people in Oklahoma were advocating heavily to avoid this outcome. Black folks even traveled all the way to Washington, D.C. to petition Teddy Roosevelt, the president, to not let Oklahoma become a state if it was going to uphold Jim Crow. But President Roosevelt sort of ignored these demands. Oklahoma becomes a state. And the very first law they passed instituted segregated train cars throughout the state. So this idea of Oklahoma that could have been anything but sort of embraced Jim Crow, this idea that Oklahoma could be anything was really undermined by the creation of the Jim Crow state. 
And it really created this anti-Black attitude that kept building and building over time as we approached 1921. And then the massacre happened. And just tell us how it changed Greenwood in its like immediate aftermath. So the Tulsa Race Massacre was the most intense act of racial violence that's ever been executed upon any Black community in our country. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, that distance between the past and present begins to shrink. 100 years ago, this community experienced a race massacre. 18 hours of sheer destruction. 18 hours of men fleeing for their lives. But for black Tulsans, the story didn't end with the massacre. It continued for 100 years, a trauma felt by each generation in its own way through segregation, through urban renewal, through gentrification. It destroyed more than 1,256 homes and businesses, and as many as 300 people were killed during the attack. One of the tragedies of what happened there is that the massacre itself really was the outcome of so much anti-Black sentiment that had been fermenting in Oklahoma for more than 10 years. The attack itself was sparked by a false accusation of rape by a white woman who was in downtown Tulsa. A Greenwood resident named Dick Rowland strolls into an elevator in downtown Tulsa just wanting to go to the bathroom. The elevator doors close. He's in there with a white attendant named Sarah Page. The elevator doors close. The elevator lurches. Dick Rowland steps on her foot, maybe grabs her arm. We don't really know exactly what happened. But when the elevator opens, Sarah Page screams and a white observer sees what happened. Dick Rowland runs off. And the white observer goes to tell the police. Dick Rowland ends up getting arrested the next day. And what's critically important here is that the Tulsa Tribune, the white newspaper, published an article that claimed that Dick Rowland had attempted to rape Sarah Page, which wasn't true. This article whips its way through both black and white Tulsa, and everyone's getting wound up on the day of May 30th, 1921. On the white side of Tulsa, there's this thought that Dick Rowland, who's now been arrested, is an alleged rapist and needs to be lynched. On the black side of Tulsa, there's a thought that Dick Rowland has been falsely accused. He's a threat of being killed. He needs to be protected. These two forces end up colliding at the Tulsa County Courthouse on the night of May 31st, 1921. And a crowd of white people had gathered around the courthouse, up to 2,000 people, including men, women, and children. They really did think that they were going to try to remove Dick Rowland from his jail cell and lynch him. A smaller group of black soldiers from Greenwood marched to the courthouse and sort of demanded Rowland's release. When it's not allowed, a white man and a black man end up fighting over a gun. Gun goes off, and one of the most prominent quotes from the history of the whole thing is, all hell breaks loose. That night in Tulsa, they're shooting among black and white people all through downtown Tulsa. Black men are being dragged through the streets behind white cars. There's a really horrible story that I found in my research about a black man being surrounded and stabbed by a group of white Tulsans. It was really a night of brutality. And the next day, the next morning, essentially as punishment to Black Tulsa for daring to defend Dick Rowland, a mob of at least 5,000 people gathered kerosene, matches, guns, and weaponry, and decided to invade Greenwood, going house by house, building by building, and burning everything they saw. You know, some of the photos you'll find of Greenwood after the race massacre, it looked like a war zone. And so that destruction is something that still haunts the community today. And it's something that the city of Tulsa has yet to atone for.
First of all, the way you speak of this is so vivid and descriptive. So I really appreciate you painting the picture for my listeners. As you're telling this story, I thought of the woman who falsely accused Emmett Till of sexually assaulting her and how she just died. She was in her 80s. And we have nearly two dozen members of Congress who are older than her. The accusations that sparked the massacre were very similar to those that led to Emmett Till's murder. And yet people argue that this type of racial violence is like a relic of the past. How do you feel about that? Is it? No, I think even today we still see that obviously black people are targeted more by police and often have assumed criminality attached to them. This book I've written does not only touch on the race massacre, it goes all the way into the present day. Police violence, as an example, has been a huge issue in Tulsa in the last several years. It has been everywhere. I was able to identify a black man, Terrence Crutcher, who was unarmed on a North Tulsa highway and was shot by a police officer, Betty Shelby, in 2016. I spent a lot of time with Terrence's twin sister, Tiffany Crutcher, who's a very prominent activist advocating for police reform here in Greenwood. And so just like hearing her story and following the arc of what she's been trying to advocate for in terms of having more police oversight, ending really exploitative shows like Cops and Live PD that really try to play up Black criminality, following someone like her through her struggles to try to change things here really sheds a lot of light on the fact that the issues of 1921 are still with us in terms of Black criminality being something that's often assumed and baked into our systems and the way they discriminate against our people. And the book argues that while we largely remember Greenwood for the massacre that happened there in 1921, it is important to see the whole history, the long history of the district, both before and after those violent days. Why is that so important? Well, you know, for me, this whole story of Greenwood started, I actually remember I was living in Atlanta before this, working as a journalist, a tech journalist, like I mentioned. And I was about 28 at the time. And I remember I was having lunch one day with one of my friends and we were talking about the film Toy Vision Slave. He had not seen it. He was feeling a little bit sheepish about not having seen this big Oscar winning film and all this. And he told me the reason he hadn't wanted to watch that movie was because he was just tired of all of these depictions of us being brutalized, Black people. So many depictions of Black people in popular culture involve brutality, whether that's during the era of slavery, whether it's images from the civil rights movement. There's just so much that's being beamed into our heads as Black folks of us being abused. Viola Fletcher is 107. Well, we had friends and <clears throat> played outside and visit with neighbors and was happy there with our parents. Just love being there. I asked my friend, oh, have you ever heard of Black Wall Street? That's an example of us being successful, of us finding peace. And so for me, as important as race massacre is, the real reason I started on this project was to tell the story of Greenwood and the story of Black Wall Street and the story of this success. And so the book goes to great lengths to really characterize what it was like to be in Greenwood in the 1910s, what it would have been like to be on the streets going to the Dreamland Theater where they had vaudeville shows and like the best pictures in America, what it would have been like to go eat at Susie Bell's Cafe where the chicken liver was like out of this world. And then after the race massacre, I really enjoyed being able to capture the nightlife in Greenwood. There were certain places you could go where even if liquor wasn't legal, you could still find a way to get a little nip. 
all these famous artists were coming through, whether it was Bo Diddley, B.B. King, Etta James. They were traveling to Black spaces to perform, even as they're becoming huge among white audiences. And so this book really goes to great lengths to capture just the day-to-day beats of what it was like to live in this neighborhood, because you cannot define a community that's been around for 118 years by simply the two days of the race massacre. And the thriving cultural life of Greenwood didn't just stop after the massacre. And I think that is so important. Will you talk for a bit about the Goodwins and their role in Greenwood? Of course. For me, it was so important to tell this story through people and through families. Why was that important? I think often when we learn history lessons, it can feel a little bit too academic, a little bit too removed from our own experiences. And so I really wanted to be able to tell this story in a way that everyone in America could see themselves. I think when you tell a story through a family, you're going to find someone in that family who you identify with, whose experience matches yours in some kind of way. And so I recall on my second trip to Tulsa, again, if I can take you back to you're standing on Greenwood Avenue in the heart of the district. If you just turn your head right and look east, you'll see this old auto garage with a sign on the front that says the Oklahoma Eagle. Oklahoma Eagle is a black newspaper in the community and it's owned by the Goodwin family. And so I recall on my first trip to the Eagle office, I was standing, I actually tried to enter through the back, which was the wrong way to go, to this big industrial door. And I'm trying to call the publisher and he finally bursts through the door and says, you're late. Oh man, I've already messed up my first interview with this guy. But luckily he was so nice to me. His name is Jim Goodwin. He's 83 years old. He's the publisher of the Eagle and his family has owned this newspaper since 1937. And so that first day I met with Jim, he was able to just unspool for me this amazing story of their legacy, how they had come to Tulsa from Jim Crow, Mississippi, a small town called Water Valley, that was an epicenter of Ku Klux Klan activity when the Klan was at its peak. In a place like Water Valley, if you're a black man walking down the street, you're expected to step in the gutter and let a white man walk by. And so Jim Goodwin's grandfather, J.H. Goodwin, said, I'm not going to have this anymore. I'm getting out of here. And he was one of the people who was sort of recruited to come to the Eden of the West, Oklahoma, this Black utopia. The Good Ones came to Oklahoma in 1914, before the race massacre. They opened a business right on Greenwood Avenue, a grocery store. They experienced the thriving of this community. It was J.H., his wife, and Jim's father, Ed Goodwin Sr. They also experienced the destruction. Ed Goodwin Sr. was a high school senior about to graduate high school when the race massacre occurred. It was literally the week of graduation. One reason the Good Ones were a great family to follow and place at the center of this book is because despite losing their home, losing their businesses, losing many of their neighbors, they stayed there and they rebuilt. Ed Goodwin Sr., Jim's father, ultimately ended up coming back to Tulsa after college, opening his own shoeshine parlor and grocery store and clothing store on Greenwood Avenue, and then eventually buying this newspaper, the Oklahoma Eagle, that the family's had now for more than 80 years and that they've been using to cover what happens in this community every single week. And so it really was an honor to work with them closely and be able to capture what they do. And even beyond the newspaper, one thing that was fascinating about the Goodwin family is that they're a big clan, to be honest. I know at least probably 15 to 20 of them now, personally. And what I love about working with them and telling their story is that they really capture every kind of role you need to make a community thrive. We have the journalist, the grocery store owner, the undertaker, the activist. Even the legislator, Jim Goodwin's niece, Regina Goodwin, is currently the state representative who represents Greenwood in the Oklahoma State Legislature. She's one of very few Black women in that body. And so having that family as a through line throughout this narrative, I think, helps keep readers 
I have an anchor point. There's always things that unfold, and we know the good ones are always going to be there, and they're always going to be fighting for this community. That idea of, despite struggle, what makes a community thrive? Do you think you've figured that out? That's a great question. There are a few things that I think that make a community thrive. One thing is institutions. What I realized digging into Greenwood's history is that Black institutions were so important. The newspaper, the Eagle, and its predecessor, the Tulsa Star, were so important pushing back against racist characterizations of Black people and advocating for civil rights. The Black church was so important. This is like Mount Zion Baptist Church and Vernon AME. These were the places where people gathered every week, not only to praise God, but to build connections with each other. And also to honestly to help rebuild after the race massacre, raising funds to help this community come back together. Even places you might not think of as being as important really played a vital role. I'm thinking, for example, about the Dreamland Theater, which is a very prominent theater in Tulsa before the race massacre. A remarkable Baptist pastor named Solomon Sir Jones is the pioneering filmmaker. His footage was lost for more than 50 years. Jones captures the bustling life of Greenwood, which could be any American small town. You might have seen it depicted in the Watchmen TV show on HBO, but the Dreamland, not only did it play the movies and the vaudeville shows, but it was also a gathering space where there would be protests against Jim Crow incursions that were happening at the time. And so all of those activities are really predicated by Black independence and Black land ownership. These are all different spaces in which Black people own property and decided what to do with it, what to build on it. And so I think that's a big element, too, of how you make a community thrive, giving people autonomy and space through land ownership to determine for themselves what they want to do and what they want to build with their own communities. I love it. It's so important. And I love that you mentioned the theater. Part of my activism is always going to D.C. to lobby for the National Endowment for the Arts. And our people in government, our elected officials, think of the National Endowment of the Arts as being Hollywood. And really, it is the small community theaters that are gathering spaces. There are very few places in this country where you can go and find people of all religions, all ethnic backgrounds, everything. And it's the theater. It's a movie theater. It's a space, an art space. And it always creates conversation that is so vital. Another community that was thriving a century ago was that three-fourths of Black farmers in Oklahoma owned their own acreage. Let's talk about that. Do three-fourths of Black Americans in Oklahoma still own land or property? That's definitely not the case. Black land ownership has been on a steady decline since the start of the 20th century. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is white duplicity. One of the fascinating things I found in my research was just the scale of schemes, land grabs, lies that are being told to Black folks in Oklahoma to take their land was astounding. I centered on this story about this man named Cass Bradley. He was a white real estate broker in Oklahoma. He would make these schemes and these contracts to convince Black people to part with their land for something like $50, $75. And what I noticed when I examined these contracts was that many of the people that he worked with, instead of writing their names, they wrote an X on the line. 
which meant they were illiterate. And so who knows what he was actually telling them about what he was going to give them, what they're being offered, because they couldn't actually read the contracts. And he ended up being arrested for fraud in Oklahoma. And now that's just one example of dozens of people. They were called grafters, actually. There was a name for that. There was a name for that activity, grafting in Oklahoma. It was so widespread. I don't like placing all the emphasis on what white people were doing or what the quote-unquote villains were doing because Black folks in Greenwood were always responding. And so in Greenwood, in the midst of all this grafting and duplicity, there was actually a effort by attorneys and journalists to create a league of lawyers who would defend, who would represent Black people's interests against the grafters. And so that was an example of a problem that emerged via all these land grabs going on and then Black people finding a solution by bringing in their own attorneys to represent the people and make sure that they didn't get swindled out of all their land. Tell us more about how important the role of a free press in Tulsa has been, just because I think it's very relevant to what we're going through right now. Of course, the free press has really been vital in Greenwood from the very beginning. It's really important to understand that before the race massacre, every week when white people opened the newspaper, the Tulsa World or the Tulsa Tribune, they were seeing stories about Black criminality, about Black poverty, and just articles that jumped into their heads again and again that Black people were lesser or subhuman. I remember during my research learning about a lynching that occurred just outside Tulsa in a town called Wagoner. A Black woman named Marie Scott was accused of attacking a white man. And based on this accusation, she was taken out of her jail cell and lynched in downtown Wagoner. In the press the next day, there was an editorial in the newspaper that praised lynching, said sometimes a lynching can be a valuable thing. You know, in the white press in Tulsa, it was a very similar sentiment. It was only the black press in Tulsa that actually responded and said, no, lynchings are wrong. No matter the circumstances, anyone deserves a trial. How our society functions that you get a trial and you're found innocent or guilty. We're not going to submit to mob law. And so it was really the black press at the time as this mob law fever was exploding across America. We have even talked about the Red Summer of 1919 when race riots and massacres were happening all across America, very similar to what happened in Tulsa. It was really black folks, people like W.B. Du Bois in the NAACP, as well as local journalists in Tulsa, such as A.J. Smitherman, who were saying that we're not going to put up with mob law. We didn't exist in the other papers. We were neither born, we didn't get married, we didn't die, we didn't fight in any wars, we never participated in anything of a scientific achievement. We were truly invisible unless we committed a crime. But in the black press, the Negro press, we did get married. They showed us our babies being born. They showed us graduating. They showed our PhDs. This is against our American ideals. And to your point, Alyssa, I think that we're dealing with similar issues now where we really need journalists and the press to be able to stand up and say that, for example, police brutality is an overreach and we're not going to just submit to what the state tells us about what's happening in these police-citizen interactions. And even to be able to say, obviously, that in the era of President Trump, that we could not just listen to any sort of lie he said. So I think that the press, certainly before the race massacre and even during, played an essential role. Even in the immediate aftermath of the race massacre, one of the tragedies was that Greenwood actually had two black newspapers in Tulsa in 1921. Both were destroyed during the race massacre. 
And right afterwards, we see, again, lies and schemes emerging where the white real estate men in Tulsa are tending to make a land grab of the Greenwood property. It was only through the Black press and other parts of Oklahoma that we were able to find out about these schemes and really get a true account of what was happening, a true account of how Black people felt about them. If you read the white press, you would think it was all hunky-dory among the Black folks in Greenwood. But then if you read the Black press in other cities, you're seeing that actually that Black people don't want to give up their land. They want to defend Greenwood, and they want to find a way to rebuild from this disaster. So really, at every step, the Black press has played an essential role. I actually remember in my later research, I looked up archives of other Black journalists in other cities, and a journalist in Cleveland named Charles Loeb, he was an editor at the Black newspaper in Cleveland, and he had a great quote about being a Black journalist. He said, it's hard to be objective when there's a foot on my neck. And I just love that perspective. As journalists, we're taught to hold up objectivity as the holy grail. But America's never been an objective place. Everyone has their own position in it, and they're treated differently based on the color of their skin, their gender, their sexual orientation. And so I think that the Black press has often been more attuned to that than the mainstream institutions often are. And that's so valuable today as we enter an era in which objectivity itself is under attack anyway. Being really well attuned to the fact that you're going to have to have your own POV, I think, is really valuable. Right now, the Oklahoma legislature is trending more and more Republican and more and more white. What effect does this have on the residents of Greenwood? And is that a similar trend that we're seeing all over the country in these Jim Crow states? It really is. And it's been really fascinating for me because I spent a lot of time in the Oklahoma Capitol the last few years. I was shadowing Regina Goodwin, the state representative for Greenwood, who's one of the people in this family at the center of my book. Regina always tells me every year there it's harder. Every year there are the fewer Democrats. And every year there, the Republican agenda gets more radical. I've kind of watched it happen right when the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial was happening in Tulsa. And there was this big effort by the city to get for this celebration almost of how we'd overcome so much and moved on, turned the page as a society on this horrible event. That was right when the first anti-critical race theory law was passed in Oklahoma. And so those things collided in a big way. I remember during the Capitol riots, only a few months later, it was Senator James Langford of Oklahoma, who was actually the person standing up there in the Senate, planning to vote against certifying the election results when the mob breached the Capitol. It was interesting being here in Oklahoma and observing how even as we were sort of espousing the idea that we had moved so far beyond the Tulsa Race Massacre and the ideology that was behind it, that we still see efforts to limit our knowledge of the past and also efforts to limit our rights today. Even since the CR, anti-CRT bill was passed in 21, there's been even more efforts here in Oklahoma to limit what students can learn in classes. The state of Oklahoma just elected a new state superintendent named Ryan Walters. He's probably the most right-wing superintendent that the state's ever had. He says he's on a crusade against, quote unquote, left wing indoctrination. And actually, this week at a legislative hearing, he called Teachers Union a terrorist organization. Oklahoma's in a pretty bad spot politically, I would say. And to your point, that's happening across the country. But I do think that a book like this, which really centers local and state politics, can be valuable for people. Because we all need to get a lot more aware of how our own state governments work. We've been in an era of very focused on national politics in terms of obviously the Trump show. Had us all glued to CNN and New York Times every single day. But in reality, it's at the state and local level where a lot of things that affect your daily life unfold. 
Like, for example, before I wrote this book, I did not understand the fact that in, say, legislatures, committee chairs control what bills are heard and which are not. So if the committee chairs are all Republicans, they don't even have to hear Democratic bills. And I sort of walked through in my book how Regina Gillibrand's bills were stifled because of that. And so I just think all of us could stand to learn a little bit more about how those local and state politics work. And hopefully this book can shed a little bit more light on that for people, too. And when you think about across southern states, conservative governments are trying to make it harder for black people to vote, which makes for whiter governments. And you look at the fact that in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the Voting Rights Act. How do we progress? What is the effect of all of this and how do we get past it? Are we going to see it in our lifetimes? I think for me, what's been fascinating about being immersed in this history, I really do fully now believe that history can be cyclical. I don't know if I believed that when I was younger. You know, I was 18 years old when I got to vote for President Obama for the first time. And I think that really set my mind on the concept that history could be linear. History might just be a sort of a line from here to there. We're just going to keep progressing in a positive way. I'm talking about something more substantial. It's the hope of slaves sitting around a fire singing freedom songs. The hope of immigrants setting out for distant shores. The hope of a young naval lieutenant bravely patrolling the Mekong Delta. The hope of a mill worker's son who dares to defy the odds. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. And I think what's gone on the last seven or eight years has shown that's not true. And what I've observed is that a lot of what's happened here reminds me of what happened in Oklahoma in those years before the race massacre in the sense that you start out with having one Jim Crow law and you just stack more of them on top of that. You start with having one lynching, you stack more lynchings on top. And so often, I think once you allow these hateful sentiments to take root, they end up expanding really quickly. We're definitely in a dangerous moment right now where those echoes are being felt really loudly. I think that part of what we can do to protect ourselves really is, again, focusing on our own local communities. We become a very atomized people that are all like in our own little worlds, in our own little niches, on our own little phones. And I think it's really on us to step outside a little bit and engage with our own places. I mean, that can mean go vote. That's important. But I think before you vote or before you're going to get people to vote, you have to create institutions they find valuable. That it has been the church in some cases, local newspapers. They're all different ways, but I think we need to figure out what are going to be the institutions of our modern era that people can find value in. I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, and I have some friends who still live there, and they're so excited about this book and the lessons it offers about community building. And we're talking about ways that we can take those lessons from the past in Tulsa and apply them to a place like Montgomery. And so I really look forward to hopefully this book being able to help people see the ways that communities can function because it's so local and intimate and maybe apply some of those lessons to the places where they are right now. Are you afraid your book's going to be banned? You know, when I began the project, that was the furthest thing from my mind in 2018. But I think especially with the appointment of Walters as our state superintendent, that it really would not surprise me. I actually remember when the first CRT bill was passed here in Oklahoma, President Governor Stitt, he did an address and he really was trying to reiterate, this isn't going to spread further. This is a very narrow remit. Everyone's freaking out was basically his response. But we've seen, obviously, since then, 
it has gone from what Republicans claim would be a very narrow remit to an Oklahoma challenging books like A Raisin in the Sun, Why the Cage Bird Sings, The Biography of Frederick Douglass. Those kinds of American classics are being challenged. That means no book is safe. I don't want my book to be banned. I think it has a lot to offer, especially to young people here in Tulsa. There's actually an entire chapter about the historic Black High School in Greenwood and how it came to be. And I think that'd be amazing for kids today to read who go to that school. But I do think that in the climate we're in, that a ban would not surprise me. What are the lessons the rest of the country can learn from the deep history of Greenwood? I think the first and the biggest lesson is that the past isn't just past. Another reason I really wanted to go beyond the race massacre itself was to show how that legacy impacts us today. Right now, we're having a lot of debates in a lot of communities about reparations and what Black people are owed for what happened in the past. That's unfolding in Greenwood in a very dramatic way. And so I think capturing that here offers lessons for other places about how they can address their own injustices that were in the past. I think that even beyond the race massacre, we have a highway that cut through the neighborhood of Greenwood in the 1960s, taking homes and businesses. That's another issue that has not been addressed that should be. So I think to me, that's the biggest lesson that all of these things in history that American society has tried to sweep under the rug, which I learned first when I was at the University of Alabama, learning about the first Black student. Like All these things impact our built environment, our psychology, our relations. And so I think bringing history to life in that sense, it's about more than just entertainment or trivia. It's about the way we live now and the way we interact. So for me, I think that's the biggest lesson the book can have for people. And I hope that they'll be able to, again, apply what I've learned about Greenwood to the places they call home themselves. And we talked about the lessons. What about the surprises? Were there surprises while you were researching that you discovered? There were surprises, both good and bad, I would say. One of the toughest things that I uncovered, I spent so much time just in libraries and archives, very mundane, tedious work day to day, to be quite honest with you. But sometimes you find things you're not expecting to find. And I remember I was at the Oklahoma State Library is actually in Greenwood, and there was a Red Cross report from after the race massacre. My great-grandmother awakened my grandmother by the words of Eldoris, get up, the white folks are killing the colored folks. The Red Cross was one of the few white institutions that actually did right by Greenwood and really provided some positive aid to the community in the aftermath of the race massacre. And so they have this document where they outline by the number, sort of all the statistics they had about what happened. So they have 1,256 homes destroyed. They have the number of meals they issued. They have the number of tents they helped people construct in the aftermath. And they also have this information about injuries and fatalities, number of people hurt, number of people killed. In that listing, they also mentioned that there were eight stillborn babies during the race massacre. And of all the numbers I found, that one really stuck with me. It was really hard to process sitting there alone in this library, just trying to absorb that, absorb the fact that 
Greenland's past had been destroyed, but its future was taken in a big way too. Those babies didn't even get to have names. I say that in my story and it would really, when I talk about it, it gets me angry. I'm a pretty low-key guy. I keep things very even keel all the time. But when I think about it, that's really what sort of gets me angry about what happened and about the fact that the city of Tulsa still has not atoned for those eight stillborn babies, let alone anyone else. What gives you hope? What has given me hope about all of this is following the people who are still here today. Talking to Regina Goodwin, who goes over there to Oklahoma City and this almost all white, almost all Republican legislature. And it stands up to them every day. If you watch her on the floor, she's not holding back. And so I think when you see someone like that, whose family experienced this massacre, rebuilt, and she's still her fighting, but you have to fight yourself. Tiffany Crutcher, her brother was killed by the Tulsa police. They saw justice through the courts and they were denied. Betty Shelby, the police officer, found not guilty in that case. She's still here fighting for criminal justice reform and has continued to do so even in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder and sort of this backlash we've seen to that lately. She's still here advocating for police reform. When I follow women like that who are really not going to back down from their beliefs and what they're trying to do for this community, that is really what gives me hope. And I know there's always going to be people like that fighting. And I think, again, zeroing on that local level is how you find some of those folks and give them the respect and the resources they deserve to achieve their goals. Victor Lukerson, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much, Alyssa. In Tulsa, the racial and economic disparities that we see today is a direct result of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the current mayor of Tulsa, G.T. Bynum. And these disparities that we all know exist, some of these disparities that you've already heard is that we live 11 to 14 years less than our white counterparts in South Tulsa because we have no health care, we have no hospital. North Tulsa, Black Tulsa is where I live, where I grew up. I'm a, I'm a son of Greenwood, a proud product of North Tulsa. We have no hospital. We're shot and beaten by the police three to four times more than our white counterparts in Tulsa. We have 35% of our people, Black people in Tulsa, living in poverty. We own our homes two and a half times less in Tulsa Blacks than white Tulsans. It is important to remember singular events that mark important points in history. Events like the Tulsa Massacre. But it's more important to put those events in an ever-evolving historical and cultural context so that we can see what those events taught us and what work remains to be done. The Tulsa massacre was a terrible injustice of almost unspeakable violence committed against Black Americans by whites in power. But that's not all that Greenwood was, is, or will be. The people of Greenwood continue to triumph, innovate, and exist, and struggle. And we're seeing powerful, mostly white, political forces continuing to align against them in the Oklahoma legislature. And it's not just Oklahoma. In states across the country, right-wing legislature, emboldened by a Supreme Court which took away the Voting Rights Act, are working openly to oppress Black voters and suppress Black votes. The lessons of Greenwood still need to be learned, not just of the massacre, but of the many decades 
before and since. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.